All right, so you're all here for resuscitation. Anybody do resuscitation in the room? There must be, yeah, we've got our A&E, so this is all about resuscitation, so you should help us out here with a bit of ABC. Keep coming in. All right, um, this is a lot of still my thought processes. I've been involved in evidence-based healthcare now, evidence-based medicine for 25 years, and it's really interesting. Uh, I'm starting to really get, my, get the hang of it after 25 years, and so lots of this is just my thinking. If you ask me about research methods, I could probably spend the whole week here actually talking to you, and we'd still be, I'd be interested. But actually this talk is about thinking about what is it the crux of evidence is, is about, we think about evidence, high quality evidence and what it means for practice. And at the moment I've got to switch this on, is it recording? So be careful, if I say anything stupid, please let me know. If you say anything stupid, it'll be on record. Okay, all right, so let's start. So look, many of you on the EBM course will think about Going back, it was Archie Cochrane who came along and said, look, we need a summary of the evidence, of the critical evidence that underpinned healthcare. And this is in the 1970s. So it's about 50 years ago, people were looking at healthcare and going, look, there's something fundamentally wrong in how we practice, lots of it's opinion-based, and we have to get somewhere summarizing the evidence to improve and understand what we need to do, and we need randomized trials, okay? Second is, many of you, and I will see your mentor, late mentor Dave Sackett, was particularly in the debit, is underlying uh, best research evidence. It wasn't just evidence, it was the best research evidence, underpins evidence-based medicine and the practice of healthcare. And when David arrived in the 1994s, when I was here as a medical student, there was lots of activity there. There was the birth of the Cochrane Library in 1993, Centre for Statistics and Medicine, that was about 94, and the Centre for EBM, that's the first ever website, uh, is 1994-95. So lots happening in that time. But I want you to draw attention to this one particular, which was wrote by Doug Altman, who's still Professor of Statistics here, who wrote an editorial in the BMJ in 1994. And um, often if you want to get a, a, a paper cited a lot, it's all about the title, isn't it? So the scandal of poor medical research. But particularly, we need less research, better research, and research done for the right reasons. It's a really nice sentence, isn't it? That's what got thousands of citations on this paper, I think. But if you read it, it's really interesting. What he's saying at the time is it was almost like developing research evidence was a hobby. And it was particularly a hobby for many clinicians. And so it was so poorly done that actually nobody could actually tell what was good research from bad research, and very little of it was translated into practice. But what I want you to draw your attention to now is to jump forward, okay? And let's jump forward. If we say need less research, better research, and research done for the right reasons. If you go onto PubMed and type in using the number of randomized trials, you can go back to 1995 and trace the increase in trials, okay? So there's been about a threefold increase in the number of randomized controlled trials. So you could say, well, actually, that's better research. We've had much better research done in that period of time. So we've done the good thing. But you can also then say, well, let's look at observational research and do the same thing. You can tie in the thing and look at the terms. And then you can see, actually, there's been a nearly fourfold growth of observational research in that time. So we've gone from about 100,000 observational studies when Doug was there saying there's a huge problem to actually now there's 400,000. And in fact, it's more than that because that's 214. I can to go through each year, they get indexed and then you can pull them through. And if you look at the whole of evidence, if you look at all the research in PubMed, it's actually, it's a huge phenomenon, research. It's a huge industry. It's a huge business. 
Over a million articles published each year. And it's growing at a percentage that's almost exponential. It's going up this way now. So the first thing is to say it's not difficult to get published. All right? Anybody think it's difficult to get published in the room? There must be somebody. There must be somebody. There's always somebody. Your first article is always the hardest. But basically, after about the first five or ten, it becomes ridiculously easy. And a million per year. So actually, there's a huge growth in research. Okay. But if you take them 31,000 trials, okay, in the statisticians in the room, we'll see this is a normal distribution. Can I look at the stats people and they say, happy with that? You happy? And if you assume like out of the 31,000 trials, if we say, let's just say, on average, when you, before you start, they make no difference to practice. Okay? So we sum up all the trials, positive and negative, and on average, they make no difference. So if you take your normal distribution and you say, well, let's tail 2.5% out, you would expect to see about 792 positive trials in that distribution. Okay? Everybody happy with that? Following me? Yeah, you would also expect to see 792 negative trials, wouldn't you, if you take that distribution. Okay. However, you would think with all the money that we spend, we have biomedical research centres that get hundreds of millions of pounds, that we were a bit better than on an average no benefit, wouldn't you? I think we were a bit positive. Hello there. Come to the right talk? Okay. Very good. Would you like me to start again? <laughs> all right. This is the difficult bit you have to follow, all right? So if you expect that all them, and is there any basic scientists in the room? Okay, one person at the back put their hand up there. Hello, sir. Um, on average, the research you do makes no difference. Is that fair to say? <laughs> Anybody in the room like to claim, on average, my research is slightly better than average, or slightly worse? What do you think? Because if you think about it, it should look like that, shouldn't it? It should look, on average, we should be positive. And if you do that, you would be then able to say, well, actually, this is how many impact on clinical practice. And actually, out of the 31,000, it's 30%. So it's 10, 15,000. So you can say, well, actually, this line is about 70% chance at the outset. On average, 70%. Do you see that following? Okay. So that's interesting when you think about it. All this research that should translate into practice. Well, if you do follow that, um, if you're in trouble in Oxford, you should always talk to somebody who's one of your neighbours and say, I've got this issue, I'd like to talk to you. So I went to talk to Rafael Pereira about this paper, about this issue, and he said, oh, we've published on this already. So there's always somebody who's smarter than you in the room you can turn to in Oxford. So this is about the proportion of proposed new treatments that are successful, Okay. And how often do new experimental treatments evaluated in trials superior to established treatments? That's what we really want to know. All the sum of all that research, what difference does it make? Well, when you do that, this is what they did. They looked at cohort studies. This is their systematic review, which is to try and collect all the studies that have looked at this one question. Consecutive series of randomised trials registered at or before study onset and compared new against established treatments in humans. Okay, to look at the effects. And what they found is four cohorts of randomised trials that provided data from 743 RCTs involving 297,744 patients. Happy with that? Okay. And what did they find? They found that basically new treatments are only slightly superior to old treatments. Okay. And that's really, and you can go and read the paper and you can go into it. And what's interesting, not, this is like over the last 50, 40, 50 years, it looks like 
the ability to provide new results is pretty stable over time. So when you look at that, and the other thing is to say, that when you look at it, it's also a normal distribution. And that if you actually translate it, what they say in the discussion is, slightly more than half will prove to be better, and slightly less than half will prove to be worse. So this line is a little bit this way. Yeah? So out of our 31,000 plus trials, you can expect about 1,000 are positive. Okay? So first up, when you think about that, that means, wow, aren't we pretty bad at doing research? Because about 30,000 trials are of no benefit. So immediately we get rid of a huge swathe of research. So there must be some fundamental problem right at the outset to get to these stages of randomized trials to say so many fail. So that's the first issue. However, track back a bit, okay? It's still not a bad number, isn't it? 1,000 to 1,500 are positive each year and should impact on clinical practice. That's quite a lot, if you think about it. And that means as clinicians, we should be in this sort of almost all the time looking up new evidence, going, oh, I'm going to change my practice this week. There's some new evidence come. But how many clinicians in the room are there? How many clinicians in the room? Okay, clinicians, uh, beyond sort of first-year house officers who have probably changed their practice daily. Let me ask you a question. When was the last time you changed your practice? Um, different antibiotic treatments for drug-resistant gonorrhea. Okay, and that was in the last? In the last, so you did once? Yeah. Okay, so we've got one of the 1,000, and that... Mm -hmm. um, the one I remember most is Tepagoras. Okay, and that... Last three years, okay. Okay, and how long was that? When was that? Uh, twice this past three months that I had to start, start using it. So you've done it in the last year, you've changed practice once? So once in the last year. Okay, yeah, when you, it's, nobody ever does a survey, it'd be great if we had some like ongoing survey, I've changed my practice, I'm going to put it on the register, I've done something different based on a bit of evidence. So when we look at it, it's actually a very small number, so there must be something fundamental going wrong. And generally that might be on evidence from three or four years ago not from the evidence that as it comes out. So our ability to take up evidence is delayed already. So when you ask clinicians, actually we don't translate evidence into practice very often, do we? So that's an interesting concept. So we've already got rid of about 95% of all research that needs resuscitation already. So let's just focus on the 5%, okay? Maybe it's 3 to 5% that actually could make a difference. Okay, but... This is the issue. The reason that bit doesn't translate is because there are significant problems in the evidence that exist within that EBM bit. That EBM bit is then 1,500 trials, isn't it, a year? We can forget the 95. It's just that 1,000 to 1,500 we want to know about and see if we can translate them into practice. Okay. When you think about why there's so little, this was my first and often my first sort of thinking about this issue is it's often you can just pull out a paper that says, well, it's external validity, internal validity, and there's some problem with clinical significance. And for many years, I would have said that to you. And then I think, mm, what does that actually mean? What do we mean by external validity? Should apply to the trial populations we see in practice. The trial's internal validity should be robust and have valid methods. And clinical significance should mean it makes a difference. Um, sounds good. You have to learn it and you have to do it, and then you think, mm, is that quite right? 
Uh, and interesting, while all this going on, even the CMO is so worried about the translation of evidence that she's come out now and said they must be able to report public trust in the safety and effectiveness of medicines. The CMO, Sally Davis, has come out and said we need a authoritative report of what to do about the evidence and how we should inform public because they don't trust us anymore. So while we are clinicians are developing the evidence and created loads of problems, actually the patients are starting to see through the issues and are doing much of the work for us and saying, hey, there's a problem. There's a problem. We don't believe you. When you come about vaccines, we don't believe you. When you come about medications, we don't believe you. When you say you shouldn't take your antibiotics because of resistance, I don't believe it. I still want my antibiotics. The patients don't trust us. So they're getting this message. Then the media doesn't trust us. So um, this is a really interesting paper. I would uh, put this on your reading list. This is a paper from 2001 from Dave Sackett, who started was. When you go through lots of Dave's articles, He's wrote an article about once every 18 months, which is really interesting to read because he was obviously thinking a lot about these issues. Why randomised control trials fail but don't need to? And this is a bit of really interesting. The only formula, and we can take the word clinician, anybody ever needs to know about trials. Okay? This is the only formula, and then I'm going to show and make it a bit simpler in my own thinking. So this is the formula. Our confidence, which means how confident are we in the effects, is directly proportional to the signal divided by the noise times the square root of the sample size. Okay? Now, stay with me. I'm going to translate a few words for you. Confidence in the balance of the benefits and harms of a treatment. Yeah? Because it's about the benefits and the harms. Signal is the effect size and the noise is the amount of bias. Okay? Happy with that? And I'm coming at the square of the sample size I'm going to come back to so I'll leave that because it's, it's, I understand it, but it would take me five minutes to explain you. And if it takes five minutes, it's of no value because I'm going to make it even simpler, hopefully. All right. Read the paper, you will understand it. All right. So when I do that, everybody happy with that for now? Careful, I might start asking you about it in a minute if you've memorized it. All right. Now, when I realize a lot of the things we're writing, I can see then that a lot of things we're writing is in there. So when we wrote this editorial with Ben Goldacre about how medicine is broken and how we can fix it, what I realized is a lot of the time we're mentioning the biases. That's what we're doing. Yeah? And because it's, it's proportional to one over the bias, as the biases increases, you can see you have to have a bigger effect size to overcome them biases. Do you see that? It's really simple to think about. So if you want to have an effect based on an observational study, you should have a rather large effect size, shouldn't you? Because we know observational studies are uh, biased compared to randomised trials. If you have defects in the randomised trial, you should have larger effect sizes. And it's a simple way of thinking what you're charting to look at. Okay? So, uh, and I've wrote a lot about this, thinking that actually there are these systematic problems, conflicts of interest, entrenched problems in EBM, and we're in deep trouble a bit because they're becoming so problematic. What do we do about it? So it's trying to provide a system so people can think simply about what to do. Okay. Now, um, here's how I've rewrote it. Okay, so patient benefit is proportional to the outcome divided by the amount of bias and multiplied by what we call the optimal information size. Okay. Optimal information size means you've got to the point where you've got enough information to answer the question and you can stop. Because what happens now is people say we've got big data, don't they? And our number's so big that actually it's going to overwhelm this. 
They're not going to care about that. Patient benefit equals big data. Big data equals patient benefit. But actually, in any scenario, you can calculate the optimal information size where you can say, based on what we'd expect to see, this is how much data we'd like to see in our randomized trials, in our systematic reviews. And at this point, if we haven't developed any certainty, we can reject the treatment and say it's not worth carrying on. Or sometimes you can stop and say, actually, this is beneficial. We don't need another trial. We can stop. Now, that's an important concept that nobody's ever talked about and talked about very little. I have a PhD student that's about to start to publish on this because it's really important how many treatments reach the threshold of optimal information where you can say we're happy to be certain about this treatment. Okay? So what you want to do with these three phenomena is you want to optimise the outcomes, you want to minimise the bias, and you want to achieve the optimal information size. That's it, really. For any treatment, that's what you want to achieve. And if you achieve that, and you say, we've optimised the outcome, it's an important outcome, there are minimised biases, and we've achieved the optimal information size, we don't need guidelines, we should get on with it. Okay? So a very good example of a treatment that I might meet that is aspirin in MI. The outcome's important because it's death. It's quite a big outcome at one month. It's about a 4% absolute reduction in, in mortality, 3 or 4, somewhere around there. 3%, 4%. The biases are minimised because you've got 200 different randomised trials that it's been replicated in. And them 200 trials have been in, put into a, an IPD collaboration to achieve the optimal information size. You don't need a guideline. 99% of people on aspirin get aspirin at heart attack. And clinicians will respond when the evidence meets this criteria. The problem is often evidence doesn't meet this criteria. Okay? And we're in an uncertain world where the outcomes are meaningless, the biases are quite high, and we haven't quite got enough information. And we're going to end up with a guideline. Okay? And people hate guidelines. Right? Now, let's just take one of them. I can't give you them all, because, but we could. Uh, I can tell you what we're going to do about this at the end. So, let's just think about outcomes. How optimising outcomes, because this made me think about this. How do you optimise outcomes? What do we mean? But actually, there are major problems in outcomes when you think about it. And it's really interesting. Um, anybody think of, so if I said to you I've done a new randomised trial and I'm about to publish my outcomes and here they are, can anybody think of one type of problem that might occur with the outcomes? What thing? Yeah, so actually that's a really one. They're of no value to patients, aren't they? You look at it and you think, that's not important to me. Why do I care? That's a really important one. That's probably number one. You didn't measure it right. Yep, that's one of them. You didn't measure it at all. You didn't measure it at all. Okay. You didn't measure it at the right time. You didn't measure it at the right time. It works for some people, it doesn't work for others, and we don't know. Um, we have a mess there. You have a mess? Okay, I'm happy with the word mess. How big, how significant the outcome is? Okay, so how big is the outcome? You don't quite understand how big it is. You didn't link the patient benefit with outcomes at the beginning? Yeah, that's fair. So when you force you down there and you think it in the context of this, I'm forcing you to start to think about, now, is, what does he mean by important outcomes, valid outcomes, robust problems in outcomes? What's he, I'm sure that there are just outcomes and not outcomes. Yeah? 
Now think about it, we've got a world in millions of people involved in healthcare, in research and epidemiology, and nobody really thinks about this. And they plan whole research budgets around it. So this is what we've been doing, look, I've been thinking about it. When you look at it, here's recent ones. Here's one about problems of surrogate outcomes, okay? You understand what surrogates are? Surrogates are an outcome onto the real disease of interest. So on the way to cancer, we may look at disease progression. Um, and often people would like to assume that they actually do predict the outcome of interest, but often they don't. And they're of limited value. And here, this is Scott Bauer and Rita Bredberg saying that basically, first, the FDA should promptly withdraw approval for cancer drugs that are proven to, be, to have no clinical benefit because they're all su suddenly approved on the basis of surrogate outcomes. That's one problem. Here's another one. Here's what happened is, there's a whole research agenda from a priority setting exercise. Whole people, people involved in NIHR research, number three in the Delphi of the priority exercise was, uh, here you go. So consensus is achieved among CTU, among clinical trial unit directors across the whole of the UK. Number one was research into methods to produce recruitment into trials. Methods to minimise attrition are choosing appropriate outcomes to measure. So in 2016, all the clinical trials people are telling you that we need research in how to choose an appropriate measure. We, have, we don't really know what we're doing. Huge issues and huge problems. There's more of this stuff. Here's a surrogate, Victor Montore, John Rudkin, telling you in about diabetes, how things like HbA1c, home, fasting glucose, are not what you're interested in. What you're really interested in is in important vascular outcomes. You get more of them, composite endpoints. These are fantastic way of, 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 of not optimizing outcomes because what you do is you combine a number of different endpoints to try and get the optimal information size. That's what you're trying to do when you do that. But when you do that, you're often combining endpoints of different severity, which are meaningless, and then are of not value to patients. There's more when you keep going. Here. De de deviation from intention to treat analysis in randomised trials and treatment effects estimates a meta-epidemiological study. I love the word and it's like, ooh. Trials that deviated from the ITT showed larger intervention effects than trials that reported the standard approach. So you have these biases that affect the outcome, don't you? Really make a difference. And it keeps going at outcome selection and role of patient reported outcomes in cardiovascular treatment trials. Down here there's a little bit. Many trials in which patient-reported outcomes would have been important of crucial, or crucial for clinical decision-making did not report such outcomes. 122 of 174 trials, 70% of trials, did not report the critical patient outcome. Shows you've got a huge problem, haven't we? So we've got all this research which is fundamentally distorted just because of the quality of the outcome. And you can keep going. And then this one, selective reporting bias of harm outcomes. To maximise the benefit, you'd only report the beneficial outcomes and you forget to report the harms. And so you've got a problem of publication bias, something, and a problem of reporting bias when it comes to outcomes. Somebody said missed, you didn't collect them. Well, you may have collected them, but then you decided not to report them. Okay, huge problem. And you can do that in two ways. You can say, I'm not publishing the paper, or you can say, I'm publishing the paper and I'm going to take them out. And you know what? Nobody can do anything about that whatsoever. So, putting that all together, I thought, wow, I didn't realise when I started thinking about it, there are all these harm outcomes. So this is something that we've just submitted to trials and it's come back with Ben Goldacre and Kamal Matana thinking about trial outcomes. Much surely there's a better way of putting all these together 
and because they're difficult to interpret and they do have a huge impact. But what happen, happens is the articles are one over here, one over here, and one over here, and nobody's connecting the dots in terms of all the problems. Um, this, is, uh, this is for all the researchers. This is how I go about it when I'm writing an article. It's, it's, this is a big post-it note, and these are small post-it notes, and I stick them on my wall, and I write the post-it notes, and then I move them around, and you can see this is what it starts out at, and this is what you're doing to change the, the title of, a, of an editorial or commentary. So that's one of you involved in thinking about ideas. This is some of the ways. And that, that is that table. See it? Okay? Patients in co-design, poorly chosen, methods poorly collected, equator consult, thinking about them, selective reported, ICGMA, that's some editors, obviously inappropriately. So that translates into that. It's really nice, isn't it? It's like magic. But what it shows you is there are four fundamental issues. That's what we think. At the design, outcomes are badly chosen. At the method stage, they're badly collected. At the publication, they're selectively reported and then interpreted. We all do this a bit inappropriately interpreted. So you can pick one area of this. And so here's the problem. Here, at the design, this is a particular aspect at the outset. You really are designing this in a way to maximise your chance of having a positive outcome. Yep. And that's where the first person lack of relevance to patient and decision makers is in there. You're collecting them badly. Well, missing data, poorly specified outcomes is a really important issue. You may think you're sometimes looking at an outcome like pneumonia. And when you look actually in the, in the, in the protocol, it's not actually pneumonia. You wouldn't define it that. Publication, selective reporting, publication bias, reporting bias, under-reporting of adverse outcomes, and switched outcomes. And then finally, relative measures spin, multiplicity, you can just publish as many outcomes as you want and you, at some point you'll have one positive, one won't you by chance alone. Yeah? Everybody happy with that? If, you have a, if you're a slave to the p-value, you're going to get a problem. And then this lack of core outcome sets makes a huge problem for us in evidence synthesis because often you're looking at seven trials with seven different outcomes and nobody can bring anything together. So watch out for that. But I wanted to think, so look, do you want some more? Are you still up for some more? All right, good. We can leave now if you want. All right, but look, this is really, somebody said at the back, somebody said, how can we, so this is, when I go to even commissioning groups, the MCID starts for the minimal clinically important difference. At what point would you accept this difference to make a, make a decision to treat somebody or not? And it's really interesting if you, as opposed to here's something that's statistically significant, take it or leave it, well, how much difference do you want to change practice before you start, even before you look at evidence? What's the minimal? Now, as clinicians, we will do that. We will treat people. I will treat people tonight when they may have a 50% chance of pneumonia or a 30% chance. Knowing that, actually, if I leave them, the utility is they may go on to develop pneumonia and die. So actually, I'm going to treat you at 30% chance. It's all right by me. Otherwise, to get to 100%, I've got to send them to hospital. They've got to have the x-ray. got to have the gold standard. Cost us thousands. I'm going to treat people. But when it comes to important differences in treatment, nobody has a clue. Wherever I've been and said, right, the last treatment you used when you decided, the ones that we decided, what was it in terms of the difference between treating somebody and not treating that made a difference to you saying, I'm going to do this as opposed to not? What is it you as a group of doctors decided together to say this benefit is so significant we are going to change? And what we're looking for is a 
1% reduction in mortality with this new treatment? 0.1%? 0.001%? And wherever it go, nobody actually could stick their hands up and goes, yeah, we thought about that. We really did thought about it. And when you understand the cost of new treatments, you actually sometimes are adding in cost for no benefit whatsoever. <coughs> so that's the MCIDs. But when you go and ask the same patients and say, well, this is what the doctors think, they actually want really important differences, which are about three to four times larger than what the doctors will say is important to them. So patients want, and this is in a group of rheumatoid patients, that said values are three to four great times greater than the MCID values. So patients want more than what we would accept. So actually what we do do is often stop research too quickly without optimising the intervention and thinking where do we want to get to. Huge issue and that should be really important in people developing new services, commissioning, thinking what's our target, what do we want to achieve, how much difference do we want to make. And I can tell you, I've never been with a clinical commissioning group who thinks like that yet, ever. The only two people I've seen that is the WHO. So it's interesting, they go to the lowest resource settings in the world. It's almost you've got to get to the place where they've got nothing to then get somebody to set an MCID. And they've got 2025, or 2020. So they want a 20% reduction in cardiovascular disease by 2020. Yeah? And they're the one. The second group I've noticed is Cancer Research UK are setting themselves a target. They're 2034. They want three and four people to be free of cancer, don't they? Or be cured from cancer. And they've tied it to 24. It's quite smart when you think about it. But at least they've set themselves a clinically important difference. I think you could answer. And I go and talk to people, right, if I go into this, anybody in the room, tell me in any of their settings, what's the clinically important difference that your organisation is working to right now? Anybody? Yeah, so you might be saying, but is your organisation talking to you or you as a practice going, this is what we're working to, this is, our, this is what would be important to us, so that's a no. You might think something up, so rather than talk to you, but no organisation tells me or can talk to me and say, this is what's important to do. And what we've got is a problem in the distortion of what's important to us. Right now, it seems to be whether you wait half an hour or 40 minutes. Not whether you get a cure or a treatment, so we get distortions in what's important to us. Because no, no, no organisation has set what's important to us. Okay? So much of what we do, and here's an example, is compare. We work towards trying to fix some of these solutions. And so this has been a, a project led by Ben Goldacre, because that's including medical students. And what we tried to do is there's been this long-term problem of outcome switching in randomised trials. That was one of my problems in the outcomes. You... What you do is, you've seen these systematic reviews, 31% of trials have had discrepancies between the pre-specified and reported primary outcomes. Three out of ten trials just basically say, here's our primary outcome, but actually it's now different when we published the paper. We switched it. And you can switch from the one that was negative or inconclusive to one that's positive. Well, that to me seems a ridiculous scandal, doesn't it? That's what I feel about it, and that's what we all feel about it. And 13%, about one in ten, one in... 15 introduces some outcome that they didn't even pre-specify at all. So one of the things we did was try and repeat this, but actually having a third feature was to see, could you correct science? Can the journals correct themselves? And these are the outcome reports. So 67 trials checked, 9 were perfect, 
354 outcomes not reported and 357 were silently added. So you can basically pull out and put in, you can basically say this is a mess. 58 letters sent, this was quite a big operation because that meant we had to check them all. Two students would check them independently and then they get one of the senior people like myself to go, oh yeah, let's go over this because we've got to do it within the window of a journal, which again seems absolutely ridiculous. So some of them are two weeks, a maximum four weeks. If you send after that, they'll send you a letter back saying, thank you very much, but you're out of time in the window. So you've got to get really organized to correct science, haven't you? You can't come months later and go, there's a problem. They'll just reject the letters, apart from one journal. Okay, so we wrote to these, all them, uh, and here's some of the responses. So the BMJ is interesting. They didn't have many trials, but they did have some with small problems, and some of them led to corrections. Okay? But then others we wrote to, no correction. So it seems to be up to the journal editor. Same problem, same issues. One we correct, one we didn't. Different editors. Odd. Lancet. Okay? They published. Many of them took over 160 days for some of them to be published. And they're all in the author's reply. It's got them to reply. And no comment from the editors on the papers saying there's a correction problem here. Just a letter some 150 days later. JAMA rejected all the letters. Not interested whatsoever. Too vague. And if you looked at the effort, there were only 250 words. So we couldn't be that vague in 250 words because there's a word limit on them. And repetition between letters. So one of the things we did is to set out a key. So we can't make any mistakes, can we? We would have a core letter that would say, this paper, insert name, has four primary outcomes, three of which were. So it was a standard letter. So we couldn't make a... So that was what they were saying about repetition. Annals of <laughs> Internal Medicine went to war in some ways, started writing editorials, were pointing out all sorts of things in their journal that they could write. So you see, they, as editors, to the editor, and in response, they were getting as much as they wanted to respond. Uh, so they'd write, they wrote this whole diatribe saying, for one trial, so this is the editors, one trial compare apparently considered the protocol published well after data collection ended. Okay? However, they did not consider the protocol published two years before McPherson and Associates' primary trial was published. So that's what they say. But what this protocol was published one year after the trial had started. Okay? You can see that's a problem, aren't you, in research? We go to the registry. The, the, the rules were you go to the registry, take that as gold standard, unless there's a protocol published prior, and we look at the protocol and say, when is it published? And that's what we do. Okay? Protocols were available for none of the ANALS trials. Yeah, and that's the statement they got, okay? And that's the reply we got when we asked emails. Outrageous when you think about what's going on in science, isn't it? So we have a reproducible statement. This is available from Dr. Emerson. If you email Dr. Emerson, that's the response you get. Try it out if you want. Then I'm interested to see what happens. New England Journal of Medicine, fantastic. Any interested reader can compare the published article, the trial registration, the protocol with the reported results to view discrepancies themselves. It took us up to four hours for two people and a senior person to do it. The quickest we did it was in one hour. So if you want to go down that route, it'll take you somewhere between one and four hours per paper. Okay, so look, that's where we are. 
Um, that's an example of poorly reported outcomes. I've shown you that actually there are four fundamental features, chosen, collection, reported and interpreted about outcomes. There are so many fundamental problems that next time you think about an outcome and you see a research outcome, just step back and think, I wonder how they were chosen, I wonder how they were collected, have they been reported and how am I interpreting it? And particularly think about it in terms of a clinically important difference. And part of that is what's led to all of this Evidence Live manifesto, which has got lots about certain outcomes in them in resuscitating the deluge of poor quality evidence, which I'd, if you want to leave a response, think about what we've said tonight, any issues, that'd be great. I'll probably quote you in some way. But interestingly, however, everything I said is now up in the air because of the way the modern world is working in terms of fabrication, research fraud <laughs> and trials. And this is the uh, newly established Chinese FDA equivalent, 80% of data has been made up or fabricated in Chinese drug trials. And that's because the overwhelming market forces are about people trying to make money. And when we've got such issues with so much money, is even whatever we do, there's still going to be the need for vigilance. Thank you very much.